0: Well, today is Christmas Eve, as you, I'm sure, know, especially the younger ones, getting ready for Christmas tomorrow. And so our sermon, I've kind of aligned it up so that we would be preaching Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. It's entitled, Jesus, Our Peace. So if you have your Bibles with you, and if you would turn there, uh, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Well, as a child, what is the number one question that you got asked, or if you're a child, that you get asked right before Christmas? What do you want for Christmas, right? Well, as a child, often it's like a toy, or a gadget, or some video game, or something like this. But if you're older, and you're past toys. You might want bigger toys, I guess. But what is it that you want? Now, often maturity in us produces a desire that we are happy to give. And getting is sort of ancillary. And so when asked, I've heard some people say, I have everything I really need. I don't really know what I want. But if I could have something, I'd love for there to be peace. Peace in my family, peace in my home, something along those lines. Or, all I really want this Christmas is for everybody to get along, right? And when you're going to all your relatives' house. Or maybe that conversations don't turn the dark path of religion, politics, and that sort of thing, right? And have all these very difficult conversations. But have you ever heard someone say, all I really want is God's favor? you ever heard anybody say that? Probably not. Whether personally, as a society, or as a world, we know about sorrow and sadness. All we need to do is just look at the news, and our most joyful Christmas thoughts are simply eclipsed. But if we shut out the news of the world around us, is what's going on in our hearts any better? So... When was the last time that you can remember spending a Christmas that was filled with only joy and no sorrow to go along with it or strife? How many conversations with your spouse, children, siblings, or your cousins just went south, like fast? And how many times did a pleasant meal end up with either frustration, awkward silence, or raised voices? So, when we experience this, we ask ourselves, what would I give for a world of joy and not all this sorrow that goes along? What would I give for a world full of peace and not war? What would I give for a heart of peace and not a warring, troubled heart? What would I give for God's favor instead of feeling?" Guilt and shame. In today's passage, we're going to see that God gave a gift so that our Christmas desires of peace and joy could come to reality in a world filled with trouble. Today, what we're going to see is that in order to remove our sorrow, in order to remove our warring and our guilt, God's good news is that He sent His Son to bring joy, peace, and His favor. Now, before I read the passage, just want to mention where we're at in the story of Luke. Basically, what has happened is that the angels have come, and they have told both Mary and Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah, that uh, he and Elizabeth would have a child, John the Baptist, that would prepare the way for the coming of Christ, God himself in the flesh. And the angel Gabriel came and told Mary that she would have a son, Jesus Christ, who would be the Savior of the world. And then we've had songs of joy and jubilation. And now we come into a place where more people are being told. And these people today are the shepherds. Let me read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people say, Amen. Let me pray. Father, would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts? Would you show us the beauty and wonder of Christ? Would you show us what Christ came to do today? In the midst of all of the holiday season, all of the giving, all of the getting, we can easily get consumed by this consumerism. And so we pray that you would give us a break Give us a a, a little bit of time here where we can just worship Christ and that we can see and have peace here in our souls. And that peace would continue after. So we do pray for your spirit to be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before I get into the text, I just want to give you a quick summary of it. So in verses 1 to 7, what we see is that Jesus is born into a troubled world. In verses 8 to 9, the shepherds see an angel of God and are afraid. And by the way, this is the same fear that Zechariah experienced, isn't it? The same fear that Mary experienced. When an angel shows up, it's kind of scary. You could imagine that. You probably haven't seen an angel come in it looking like an angel. right? Imagine if you did. And so they're afraid, but then in response to their fear, in verses 10 to 11, the angel brings joy by proclaiming the gospel of God's Son, Jesus, coming. And then it's followed by God's heavenly army appearing and proclaiming God's peace and favor instead of war. And then in ver- and that's in verses 13 to 14. Because of this, in verses 15 to 16, the shepherds respond in belief. And then in verses 17 to 20, the shepherds share the good news about Jesus. So that's where we're going today. So what I want to do in the first uh, is to look at this first point. Basically, in order to remove our sorrow, God's good news is that he gave his son to bring us joy. So verses 1 to 3, we see the world in turmoil. Now, if you look at verses 1 to 3, you see that Quirinius um, uh, was a governor of Syria, and he called this registration. This is rooting Luke, the story of Luke, the story of Christ in history. You can actually go back in history and find this dude in history. Okay? So it allows us to pinpoint that Jesus came at a particular time. But in, during this time we see this turmoil in the world as you see a young couple who is poor and forced to travel at the most inopportune time. Can you imagine going on a trip riding on animals when you are over 8 months pregnant ladies if you've had children? Can you imagine how like miserable and worried you would be at that time? Like we got to root these people in like reality. You would be like, "We have to take a trip on a donkey? 8 months pregnant? Are you kidding me? It's like" Well, yeah, otherwise the Romans are going to come and you know we'll be in trouble. So they're living, though, if you look at history, in a world of forced peace, peace under a tyrannical king who claimed to be a god. I don't know if you know that. But in Rome, peace had been declared. There had been peace for about 10 years, and it would remain this way for another 30 or so. A monument was erected, which was called the Arapacus Augustae. And that was an altar that represented the peace of Augustus. They took fragments of it and put it back together. And you can go look at it. You can find it online as well, pictures of it. Rome and Augustus had basically beaten every single one of their enemies into submission. Was there peace? Well, yeah. But it wasn't a peaceful peace. It was a peace that came about violently. A dictator's peace. No one could oppose or disagree for fear of death. And so the peace, in essence, was a bullied peace. Unless, of course, you were Romans. But if you weren't Romans, you didn't feel that it was fully peaceful. You were subjected. So then, in verses 4-7, to what you see is a picture of a crowded town with no place for a young, poor couple to stay, but in a room filled with animals. The baby's first breath in the outside world was actually a reminder of how cruel and uneven the world is. No furniture to put the baby in, just a feeding trough. No nice clothes for the baby, just strips of cloth. This is the essence of sorrow and sadness. A young adoptive father who can't find and maybe can't even afford, who knows, a place for a new baby and his young fiance to stay. Was he crying? I don't know. I might be. If all I could do was take my wife who's just about ready to have baby and put her in a room full of animals and put the baby in a trough. A young woman, having just given birth, thinking about how she wants so much more for her son. Was she crying? Maybe. Was there joy? I'm sure. But how would you feel? If you were in a situation like that, a king, a Lord, the one trying God entering life into the most humble and weak circumstances that one could ever even dream up. Could you dream up this scenario? for the God of the universe? No
1: place to stay. In a trough to lay with cloth,
0: strips of cloth instead of cloth. The Lord of Lords entrusting himself to a young girl. The light of the world, born in the darkness. The breath of all, having to gasp for breath. The king of kings, having
1: to have blood wiped off him at his birth. Can you imagine? That is unfathomable
0: that God would enter that. In verses 8 to 9, you see a group of shepherds. They're outside. They're just making sure that the sheep, more than likely many of these sheep, would be used for the temple sacrifices outside of Jerusalem. That they are safe from predators and thieves. These shepherds were not the kind of people that a king or any good Jew would want to hang around with. These aren't your first guests that you would have to come see your baby after he was born not in the Jewish culture, they were despised because their work kept them from keeping the ceremonial law. They went about the country and were seen even by many as thieves. They were thought of as unreliable and couldn't even give evidence in the court. All of a sudden, the despised group of people saw an angel from God. Because the angel comes from heaven, the shepherds get to see a bit of God's glory and majesty. It's it's wonderful and powerful, the sight. They become afraid. What's going to happen to us? Did we do something wrong? Heaven has come to earth and it terrifies them. The angel quickly responds to this and tells them that the purpose is not to bring judgment not to bring terror to them, not to bring them sorrow, but rather to give them a message from God. A message of good news. A message that will bring joy and not sorrow. What's the message? It is none other than that God has sent His Son as a baby. That is found in verse 11. Have you seen the little picture that you see of Jesus... A little baby in a manger? What's the point of it? And why in the world would such a thing as a baby who is God in a manger bring joy? The reason is found in verse 11. There's one word there that sticks out. And that word, who is Christ? Christ. The shepherds were Jews. They knew their Old Testament Bible. In it, there was a promise. A promise that was given that a chosen one, an anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, would come. The promise that they knew was found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, 61 verse 1. It refers to the anointed one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, it says. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That word Christ is a word that means Messiah or anointed one. It means the chosen one. You see, the great joy of the shepherds, is that the Chosen One has come to heal our broken hearts. The Chosen One has come to bring liberty to the captives. Christ has come to take people like the shepherds, who are poor and despised, and allow them to enter a life of freedom and give them a new identity, a life with God, a life and a world filled with joy. So what would you give for a world filled with joy? Maybe you would give your life in service, or all your money to eliminate world hunger, or you'd spend all your time counseling the broken and troubled. Maybe you would work tirelessly to solve all the sorrow that you see. But can you solve the sorrow out there? Can you solve the sorrow in here by yourself? Can you heal other people's broken hearts? Can you heal your own broken hearts? If we're honest, we can't. No matter how hard we try, we have hurt and pain, and we try to numb it with ice cream or movies or all of these things. And the reality is is that pain is so real to us, and no matter what we try to do, it doesn't go away. It comes back in our moments of silence. So what do we do? We turn on the music when we have moments of silence. To drown it out, but it still comes back when we hear a word in a song. The reality of this good news, this gospel that the angels proclaim, is that Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly remove all of our sorrow. Because our sorrow is not just external. Even if we could eliminate world hunger, sorrow still lives in the seat of our hearts. This is where sorrow needs to be eradicated. Not out there. It does. We want it to get out there, but it has to start here. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the good news. Now, to be sure, it isn't a promise that there won't be any more sorrow. At least not in this life. But that a stream of joy and peace will live inside us, flowing out to everyone. It will produce in us A river of life that flows out of us to the nations, bringing healing as they find and see the Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know that's what Jesus promised? He said to us that he would send the Spirit and that the Spirit would come and rivers of living water would flow out of us. Do you have rivers of living water flowing out of you? If you have Christ, you do. And so that is what Christ does. That is what he brings. But what are we being saved from? Just our sorrows? No, it's also warring. If you look at the world right now, Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, is there peace? No. If you look at our country, And look at all the things that are happening on a day-to-day basis. Is there peace? No. There are wars between countries, wars between tribes, wars between people, wars between religions, and wars in families. War is everywhere. When we think back to what we want for Christmas, how many of us would want to stop these wars? If you could forego, even you kids, if you could forego that new Switch game or that new PS5 game or whatever it is, to have a world where there was no war, would you do it? I bet most of you would, right?
1: What would you give
0: for a world full of peace? So the second point, in order to remove our warring, God's good news is that He gave His Son to bring us peace. Look at verse 13. You see that this multitude of the heavenly hosts Shows up now, kids. Any idea what a heavenly host is? It's like the word "host." You're like, is that somebody who feeds us dinner? No. A host is the word for armies. Okay. Do you know what shows up? Okay, here's these guys. These shepherds. You're thinking they're sitting here, la di da, you know, watching the sheep, sitting around, joking around, and all of a sudden, this angel shows up, and they're like, "Oh my goodness, we're going to die." And the angel says, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. So then he tells them this peace. And then all of a sudden, right after that, an army shows up. God's army. That's what you've got going on. So I don't know if the spiritual army, if they had swords on them, or how you would, just, uh, bow and arrows. We don't know, right? But we do know that these armies in the Old Testament killed 150,000 people in one night. That's how powerful they are. That's what they can do. Okay? They're spiritual, and they can kill physical people. I don't know how it works, but they can. These are God's angels who are his standing army. This is God's standing army
1: that shows up.
0: Now, have you ever faced down an opponent that you couldn't beat? Have you ever been in a fight with someone in your life at some point? Or were you afraid that somebody was going to get terribly angry with you and might hurt you or kill you? I don't know if you've experienced this. You may not. Hopefully you haven't. But if you have, you might know. But if you haven't, just imagine this with me for a moment. You know someone who's very powerful and has a reputation for making sure that his name is clear and free of bad connotations. Bad, um, how do you say that? I'm trying to use a different. Connotations, probably some of you may not know what that word means. Connotations is just that it, it has this, I, the idea behind it, what you think of when you have this idea. So basically, peop, there's, there's these big people who say, I want my name to be free and clear of any wrong. I want my name to show who I really am. Okay? In an encounter with somebody like this, you have, let's say, said awful things about him, or done awful things to him. You've hurt that person in some way and you've ultimately damaged his reputation. You leave and think nothing of it, yet at some point in the future, he shows up and with him a show of force and power that is bent on harming you. What would your emotional response be?
1: Oh!
0: Right? It would be fear. But what if that powerful one who you thought was going to destroy you came with nothing but favor and goodwill to you? Hey! I'm coming to make sure that you have a happy life. And they are powerful. You see, that's what you see in verse 14. God's armies announce peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is utterly amazing. God's armies announce peace and not war. And this is a big deal because... The Bible teaches that man is at war with God from his birth. From the beginning of the Bible, God made man and told him to enjoy life and peace with him, but he has to obey him. But man didn't. And because of it, brought the judgment of God upon himself and all of his children after him. And that includes you and I. This put us at a state of war with God. Everyone is born into a state of war with God. Humanity does whatever it wants to do not caring about the maker and not caring that the maker disagrees with what they're doing. This is the war. And those who are not at peace with God are doomed to face His army of angels. And that is why
1: the shepherd, ran. Because God showed up by proxy of His army. And there's only one thing. That a sinful person would expect to happen.
0: Death. Judgment. And this is why verse 14 is so amazing. The armies of the one who is in the highest heaven come to earth and tell this group of despised shepherds who represent mankind that they shouldn't be afraid because God's army is happy to announce the favor of God towards them and that God has only good intentions for them. Can you imagine that an army of these massively strong, angelic forces show up and they've all got a smile on their face? When you think of people in armies kind of lined up, do you think of people with smiles on their faces? Probably not. You think of people with stern, stern looks, focused on killing. And that's not what we saw. We see people that are angels that are happy, to announce God's favor towards them. So instead of war, the good news is that God sent His Son to bring peace. But how many of us feel that peace? How many of us are living in the guilt that only we know? What have you done in your life that you're ashamed of? What are you doing in your life now that you're ashamed of? What dark secret lies under the covers that you think no one knows? But if no one really knows, then why does the guilt on and on. Why does it eat you alive day after day? Why can't you not escape it? What would you give for a life without guilt? You see, the armies of God announce the favor of God. But there is a subtle nuance here. Verse 14 says that peace comes to those in whom he is pleased with. What does that mean? And who is God pleased with? I don't know. If you've been here long enough and listened to me teaching, you probably know what the answer is. Who's God pleased with? You and me? Who? Jesus Christ, His Son. The true answer is not us. If we think through our hearts, we know that we have done things that broke, has broken God's laws and rules. And so, He can't be pleased with us. And this is why we live in so much guilt. So, who then is he pleased with? Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly obeyed him, his son, the one who has just been born. And those who are united to Jesus, who have their evil paid for by his death, are alive in him. And so now I want to look at the last point. In order to remove... In order to remove our guilt, God's good news is that he gave his son, and if we believe in him, he was pleased with us. And that's really that third point. Because of this good news of peace, we can also tell others. I'm kind of combining those two together. So I want to look at Isaiah 61, 2-3 first. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ, the Son of God was anointed to be the one who would come and proclaim God's favor. This favor that he is that he would live a life of perfect obedience, pleasing God in all his words, in all his thoughts, in all his actions, the things that we can't do. And then because we deserve and need to be punished to satisfy the justice that God has toward us. And then he would die upon a cross and take the punishment that we deserve. And instead of ashes upon their head, that was a thing to show that they were repentant. They would have a beautiful hat. Instead of crying, they would be perfumed and beautiful. Instead of being weak in their evil deeds, they would be strong in doing good. God would do this. And so later in Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You see, instead of being covered in evil deeds, and having God angry at us. Jesus took God's anger upon him. And he took all his good deeds, all his acts of love, all his acts of kindness, and he gives them to you, to me. He traded our evil for his goodness. And so now we are beautiful to God and his face smiles at us. So who is he pleased with? Those in Christ. Those who have been covered in Christ. But the story, right? The story doesn't end here, obviously. There's another holiday Easter. It's about the new life found in Christ. Christ died, but three days later, he rose from the dead because of his his perfection. And so instead of a judge who's going to sentence us and look at us in anger and reproach, we have a father who looks at us in love and kindness. God gave his son to pay for our crimes, to allow us to live in his favor and to live a life without guilt. So the ultimate question here is, how in the world do we become the people in whom he is pleased? Isn't that the question? Because the favor only comes on those whom he's pleased with. So how does that happen? Paul tells us in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All that you do is admit that you're guilty. Admit that you've done evil and you've been warring against God. Admit that you are in misery and need someone to help you and own up to the guilt, the warring and the sorrow that you live in. And then you see and confess that God sent His perfect Son, Jesus, this little boy in a manger, the anointed one to right the wrong and to die on the cross for your sins. And Though He died, you must see and confess that He didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And once you do this... Because He saved you, and loves you, and is now smiling at you, you submit to Him as your Lord and Master, as the one who has full authority over you, and all you do is cry out to the Lord for salvation, and believe all that He says, and follow Him, and you will be the one who is favored by God. The simple message of Christ is, through
1: Christ, you have the faith of God. Simply trust in Jesus. That's it. And God is pleased
0: with you. God is pleased with you, with me, in Christ Jesus. And so, what should our response be to the gift? This is the last set of verses, 15 to 20. The shepherds and Mary and the townspeople. The shepherds' reaction was not only that did they believe the angel's report and had to go see the wonderful sight, which is a savior, who is Christ the Lord. But they went, how? With haste. These people, The angels left and they booked it. They, they just, whatever. They left their flocks and they ran off and they're like, we're gonna see this Christ, this Messiah, this one who is the Savior of the world. We are not gonna do anything until we see that. They dropped everything. And what did they do after this? Then they went and told everybody. How can anyone hold on to such amazing news that you have the favor of God, that God smiles on you, that His face shines on you? You're going to hold that in? Well, sorry, it's okay if you don't know. As people struggle and wrestle with the pain and evil of the world, and we hold on to it, and we hide it under a bushel, no. We lift off that bushel and let the light of Christ shine out of us. That's what the shepherds did. They went and they They told everybody. And there are really actually three reactions that we see in this text that many people have. First, in verse 18, some wonder. Wow, is this really a thing? Has the Savior of the world been born? You, you see that reaction amongst your friends, right? Wow, that's a pretty good message. Yeah, I don't know if it's true, but they wonder about it. Second, some ponder and wait like Mary, verse 19, saying, saying I'm expectant that something will happen, but I'm going to wait and see what it will be. It's not that they don't have faith, but they sort of say, I'm going to watch. I'm going to wait and see what's going on. The third is what the shepherds did. Worship, verse 20. It says they glorified and they praised God. Glory is attributing to God the weight and the fame that he deserves. The shepherds were saying, God should be made famous. I'm going to tell everybody. God is powerful. I'm going to make sure people know that God is powerful. There's a fourth one that's not found in the text, but is we know it to be the case, that some people make, they waste it. They doubt, they reject the good news, which many did. You see later in the book of Luke. The question that I have for you today is this. What will you do with this good news? Will you wonder, will you wait, will you worship, or will you waste? Will you wonder, wait, worship, or waste? Now, I would say that you can do three of those things. You can wonder, you should wonder, how in the world did God do this? You should wait with expectancy, but not for Christ to come, but for Christ to return. right? And the third one, you should worship. So you can do all three, but you have to have it in the right order the right, on the, for the right things. My prayer is that you will ultimately worship and follow Jesus as he calls you to trust in him, the Savior of the world who gives us peace. So what would you give for joy and not sorrow, for peace and not war, for favor and not guilt? Well, guess what? The question really doesn't matter because you can't give anything to get it. You know the whole Christmas thing? Would a gift be a gift if you bought it from somebody? somebody, Your, your parents give you a gift, kids, and you're like, oh, here's the 20 bucks for that. Would that be a gift? It'd be a transaction. Your parents would be a store, right? A gift has to be received. You can't give anything to get a gift. And what you must do is be like a child. At Christmas time, that has no money, that you just receive, that you just drink it in and delight. That you have parents who love you and who lavish gifts
1: upon. You. As a Christian, that is what you do. You receive the gift of Jesus and soak it in,
0: just like the gifts. As kids at Christmas that you get, you don't have money to buy your parents to pay them back for what they did. You have nothing to give God to pay him back for what he did in his son. So just receive it with joy and worship and wonder. That is what Christmas is about. Receiving the gift of Christ Jesus. Delight in it. And live in gratitude. You see, God gave the greatest and most precious gift, his son. So that our Christmas desires could become a reality. To remove our sorrow, our warring, our guilt, God sent his son to bring us joy, peace, and favor. May God open our hearts
1: to see the gift of Jesus Christ. And to be like a little kid. And take that gift and delight in it. And be thankful that we have a Father who loves us enough to give his only begotten Son
0: so that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of Christ, your Son. Lord Jesus, I thank you for giving yourself up for us, for bearing the war, for bearing the guilt, for bearing the shame. Upon, that is upon us. We thank You. We praise You for Your worship. For, we praise You for um, what You have done, and we want to worship You. And so we pray that You'd help us to worship You in Spirit, in truth, to delight in all that You are, all that You've done. We thank You and we praise You and ask for Your Spirit to enable us to live in gratitude, to be like the shepherds, and to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray this in His name. Amen.